Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. David Johnson from the Skeptics and Seekers podcast. So thanks, David, for coming on in as a guest to MindShift podcast. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, I'm really glad that we have this discussion going. Oh, no, you got your video on. I can see you. I'll start mine yeah, again then. I um, forgot. <laughs> I, yeah, said, right. I, I forgot saw your logo, but I was like, are we going to see face to face? But so we were on a podcast a few weeks ago, which was the Still Unbelievable podcast. I've got a friend, Matthew Taylor. He's over here in the UK where I'm at. And I think you've been on their show more, more than I have. I've been on there a couple of times. But part of that discussion was you mentioned that you had had a, a podcast on a different show where you were talking about racism and the church in America. And that later, though, this was a, a you were really kind of pouring your heart out and, and said a lot of stuff that you really needed to get out there. But later it all got edited out on this other show. And that really, you know, that was a, a real blow, it seemed like. So I yeah. thought, okay, let's have that discussion. That discussion clearly needs to be done and get and gotten out there. So uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but we're certainly going to talk about the history of racism in America and how that relates to the church. And I'm sure we'll go into other areas as well. So uh, the first thing I want to say is uh, since, since our last meeting, Clint, uh, I've been... I've been working on the beard. You're getting there. Yeah. I, I have a long ways to go. I see. Yeah. It I, takes a few yeah. years. You got to be really, really dedicated. <laughs> I'm starting to think that I should stop shaving it off every few weeks. That would be a good start. Yeah. That's okay. a really good start. <laughs> First, right. you got to let it grow. That's the key. Uh, stop shaving it. Stop cutting it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, baby steps. Baby it's steps. right. Just get there one step at a time, yeah. man. There is a point where a beard is annoying though before it true. gets luscious and so you've kind of got to go through a stage where it's, it's not it's not all fun and games so um yeah, that's where i'm at right now with it it's just getting long enough to the point where i'll just be able to start braiding it again i had it really really long and i could get one long braid that was where i was that's where i'm heading but it takes about three years to get there and meanwhile it's just a friggin' mess you know so i'm in the ugly phase right now <laughs> well, I disagree. I think it's a, I think it's a fine beard. Uh, we were we were on the show together with another uh, bearded gentleman. That's uh, true as well, David Hayward. Yeah, it was a, it was pastor. real competition of the beards. That's true. Yeah, he's been today. He's been having no it for competition. Years. Yeah, well, you're getting there, man. We'll meet up again yeah. maybe in six months, and we'll see if you've been dedicated and you've just let it go. I will not have been. <laughs> you <laughs> can say right now, it's not going to happen. You. Not gonna happen. Okay. So I want to um I wanna I wanna kick off this conversation kind of at that point. Um so yeah, there was that show mm -hmm. uh that I did with a with a um skeptic who I appreciate. Um uh, uh someone who I consider to be a, a good and thoughtful individual. And um 
after hearing uh, from him about having that section cut out, I just, I wanted to stop. I, I don't want, I didn't want to play anymore. You wanted to quit uh, podcasting. You said, yeah, I wanted to that quit bad. podcasting because it was just, it, hmm. if we can't talk about one of the most important social issues of our lifetime in a moment when the country was focused on the social issue, as skeptics, if we can't tell the truth or dare risk, and this, this is a white podcaster, can't, we dare risk scorn hmm. from our peers. If this is the state of podcasting in the broader realm, I must be just deceiving myself hmm. and I should go home. Because I, I can't, I don't want to hit at this brick wall anymore. Hmm. Yeah, when I, when I heard you say that, that really hit me. That's why I wanted to reach out to you and do this episode, because I thought, what is podcasting about, if not, as you say, to tell the truth? I mean, you got to get this stuff out there. And to hear that this person, which was like an atheist podcast, cut it out because it sounded like he said he didn't want to take too much heat from certain maybe Christian listeners in his audience and so he just thought, I'm going to stay away from this whole, you know, controversy altogether. I'll just edit this whole section out. Really? You know? So that, that was his decision, obviously. Yeah. But the thing is, if he felt that way, uh, a thousand others feel that way too. Mm. So it's, it's easy to focus on one person, but, you know, none of us are totally unique. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, um, we're representative and I wasn't sure to what degree he was representative, but I could look around me in uh, the year 2020. And I know enough history of what it looked like 50 and a hundred years ago to know that uh, the progress wasn't that much. Mm. We, we have an illusion of progress in social issues. It's there true. are reasons for that. So if, uh, if it's okay with you, I want to, I want to start this conversation with uh, a historical reading. Sure. So for your audience, uh, there was a time when uh, I was a preacher in the church. I was, been, I was a Christian for most of my life. And my particular ministry for uh, some time was racial reconciliation. Uh, it was back during a time when racial reconciliation was kind of popular, had its moment, kind of like the Toronto Blessing had its mm. moment once upon a time. These things have their moments, and you have to take advantage of the moments mm. when they're upon us. And um, so I did. And um, I, I devoted myself to uh, as much research as I could. I interviewed as many people as I could. I uh, dug up as uh, many old newspapers and um, Christian uh, periodicals, uh, things like that. Uh, I studied race history uh, from the perspective of the church in general, uh, but also the perspective of multiple denominations, including the one that I was part of at the time. Mm-hmm. doesn't actually matter which one it was, uh, because uh, honestly, they all have similar histories. Uh, so this sort of thing that I'm about to read common for its time. And uh, you can probably probably be able to place its time. But uh, the writer of this, whose name is not important, uh, there are a couple of names in here. They're names that you won't know. They're not that important either. This is a white man, and he's upset about the state of, um, of change in, 
in the church. I believe this was a preacher uh, as well, but I don't recall exactly. I have to look it up in my notes and I'm not mm-hmm. going to go back and do that right now because it doesn't matter. Ultimately, this, this right. was the sentiment of, of his day. And uh, he's talking about black church meetings and black preachers. And um, so here, I'll just, uh, I'll just start reading and I'll, I'll read it in a slightly different voice than the one you hear right now. Mm-hmm. The manner in which the brethren in some quarters, one going in for the Negro meetings, leads one to wonder whether they are trying to make white folk out of the Negroes or Negroes out of the white folk. The trend of the general mix-up seems to be toward the latter. Reliable reports have come to me of white women members of the church becoming so animated over a certain colored preacher as to go up to him after a sermon and shake hands with him, holding his hand in both of theirs. That kind of thing will turn the head of most white preachers and sometimes affect their conduct. And anybody ought to know that it will make fools out of the Negroes. For any woman in the church to so far forget her dignity and lower herself so just because a Negro has learned enough about the gospel to preach to his own race is pitiable indeed. Her husband should take her in charge unless he is gone crazy too. In that case, somebody ought to take both of them in charge. Reliable brethren in the Valley have reported the definite inclinations of the Negro man and his wife in charge of the orphan home for colored children of Combs towards social equality. They are supposed to be members of the church and some of the white brethren are apparently encouraging them. It is said that these two Negroes have privately stated that they favor social equality. And one, excuse me, and are working for it. The young editor of Christian Soldier in the Valley admits that he roomed with the Negro preacher, R.N. Hogan, and slept in the same bed with him two nights and he seemed to be proud of it, aside from being an infringement on the Jim Crow law. It is a validation, I'm sorry, a violation of Christianity itself. And of all common decency, such conduct forfeits the respect of right-thinking people and would be calculated to stir up demonstrations in most any community if it should become generally known. Wow. All right. That's, uh, that's enough of that. That's the first two paragraphs. And it goes of, on, obviously. Of this article, and it's a very long letter to the editor. 
So guessing at the historical context, you mentioned Jim Crow laws. So I'm guessing in the South, somewhere in the 1950s, was that written? Uh, well, definitely in the South um, yeah. and the 19-somethings. Right. <laughs> so, it, wasn't, it wasn't that uh, recent, though, obviously. But no, yeah. no, it wasn't yesterday. It was when Jim Crow laws were still on the books. Right. And the only reason it couldn't have been yesterday is because of the mention of the Jim Crow laws. Right. That was what gave uh, me the clue. It had to have Today, been a- the white people who would write such a thing don't know about the Jim Crow laws. <laughs> so right. it wouldn't have been mentioned. But they have the same sentiment. Because what struck me, it's funny because that was my job. I used to teach homiletics. I used to teach preaching. That was my, you know, I went to school. I went to seminary to be a professor of homiletics. I was going to train up new generations of preachers. So when you talked about the description in that paragraph where these white women are going up to this black preacher, from their point of view, he's, he's that good. He's actually moved them to the point where they wanted to come up after the service and, and shake his hand and say, you know, wonderful sermon. But the guy who's writing it says, oh, it's just an act. He's just learned something and he's just parroting from a white preacher. He's, he's just a trained monkey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's good enough to talk to his folks, but come on. Come on. Yeah. By the way, the preacher he was talking about was a somewhat famous black preacher in uh, the Church of Christ denomination at the time, which was pretty big at that time in the South. Uh, mm-hmm. His name is Marshall Keeble. That's who they're right. talking about for anyone who um, knows anything about Southern church history in particular. So you can kind of place yeah. it from there. But as you say, that sentiment is certainly nothing new because when I talked to Seven, who unfortunately couldn't make it to this conversation today, but he was mentioning that he was on a mega church in Jacksonville, Florida, just a couple of years ago. And he had studied theology. He would read, you know, G.K. Chesterton and, you know, Spurgeon and all these, you know, Aquinas and Augustine and everything. And when there'd be these church staff meetings, he would talk about, you know, oh, I was just reading in, you know, Augustine the other day, and he was saying such and such. And and people would just turn and stare at him. Like you said, like, like, how would you know that? How could you possibly know that? You know, all these white people on the staff at this mega church, and it was that same kind of sentiment that how could you, a black man, know this stuff? You read a book by Augustine, you know, it's, it's the same kind of sentiment. Well, and it's, and it's also the sentiment uh, so that it uh, isn't missed. It's the sentiment of you bark out a nice emotional sermon but it's no more significant. It's no more interesting than circus ponies. Hmm. Um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that was any great feat. Was, these are these are just lower animals who yeah, been are impressive to the masses. But it's not like you should take them seriously. You're a white person. Hmm. You know, you can listen to white preachers who know a much deeper truth. You're just getting moved and caught up by all this. Negro emotionalism, mm-hmm. and uh, that's not how we do things. Uh, so, you know, it's fine. L- let them let them be them because that's good enough for them. But it shouldn't be good enough for you as a white person. Mm. And yet, I, I can remember as a kid there was such an attraction because we used to have a church building that we sold and we moved down the road. Uh, this was in the Seattle area where I grew up. And we sold this building to a black church out in the middle of the rural countryside, which was really strange that they would even want to be out there. But anyway, they bought this building from us. But I remember as a kid, um, I would sneak out of our church 
and walk up the road and go to this black church. I was probably 10 or 11 years old because the energy, the vibe was so much different than what we had at our white bread church, you know, down the street. So even as a kid, I knew there was something there that wasn't an act. It wasn't, you know, this was just a completely different cultural experience for me as a kid, which I'm really glad I snuck out of those church services when I was 10 or 11 years old. Do you remember um, the name of the church or where the church was? I, I actually did a, did a little bit of preaching in the Seattle area. That might have been you, man. No, I don't think it was. <laughs> <That's me. laughs> but, um, something but, like the Word of Life Presbyterian Church. It was out way outside of Seattle. It was about 30 minutes south, way out in the countryside. Mm. You know? So it wasn't in any mainstream thing. They probably had about 50, 60 people in the congregation. But yeah, that and then the church kind of flamed out. They only lasted for about six or eight months. And then I went up there one Sunday and there was nobody there. And yeah. uh, it all fell apart. Well, I mean, the church is a business. Church business is a tough business. It is. You know, yeah. There's uh, no safety net. There, no. And the churches don't that don't understand that they're a business often don't survive. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, they they are business. Um, yep. So that said, do you let me let me ask you a question? Uh, do you know why black churches exist uh, and kind of how they got started? Do you know any of that history? I would say, from what I've studied, it comes out of black slaves that were sort of introduced to Christianity probably in the 18th and 19th centuries in America that then sort of had their own churches. That That's kind of the general sketch that I would offer up. So let me, let me see if I can fill in that sketch uh, a little bit. So it is true that black people who were brought over from the middle passage uh, often had their own religious ideas, sure. but it is not true that they were allowed to keep them. Uh, in fact, one of the things that was specifically beaten out of black people being brought over to America to be slaves uh, was uh, a sense of religion, along with a sense of family. Families were brutally separated, uh, husbands, wives, children. And so they were, they were dehumanized in every way, in stripped of culture in a very systematic way. And so it is not true that by the time we had what we would think of as black churches here, that there would have been some kind of cultural memory of their their religion in Africa, that Mm -hmm. that culture would have been long gone. It would have been stripped out of the first generation, but you're talking about several generations by the time you're thinking about the, what grew into the modern black church today. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a bad assumption. It, it just, it just doesn't stand the uh, Mm -hmm. rigors of history. Um, So I kind of wish that that is, how we got black churches that would that that would actually be better than the truth of how we got black churches hmm. the reason we have black churches today is largely the reason why we have black colleges and uh black owned businesses it is not because black people had a, a hatred of white people and wanted a separatist state mm-hmm so if you ever hear someone say anything like that, they are full of shit. Okay. okay. Um, that is, that is just, <laughs> that's wrong. It's terrible. It's terribly wrong. And it's almost slanderous. Mm. The reason it exists is because of white racism. Mm-hmm. Because in the beginning, when they were slaves, they didn't have power to make churches of their own. No, I mean, how would that how would that have even happened? Yeah. Uh, 
No, instead, white masters taught a brand of Christianity, and it was a particular kind of brand of Christianity that they didn't necessarily teach their own kids for the slaves. And that Christianity emphasized the better situation that they would have in heaven one day if they would stay steadfast to their lot in life here. Mm -hmm. It was don't rock the boat, but rather be content. You know, slaves, uh, honor your masters, uh, obey your masters. This was, this was the brand of religion they were taught. And why did the white masters try to teach them at all? Was it because they were concerned for their soul? No, they taught them because they realized it would make them better slaves. It would, it would reduce the propensity for slaves to try to run away or mm-hmm. rebel against their masters. Mm-hmm. So they taught them a particular brand of Christianity. But, you know, it's hard to teach Christianity without also teaching that we are all one in Christ Jesus exactly. uh, and that we are all equal. And as hard as that was to avoid teaching, they still managed to pervert that in a, in a certain way, so that as they were making black converts, they realized that they had a problem. And the problem, you might can guess by now, mm-hmm. yeah. is that the black slaves would come to the white churches and assume they were equal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, could not be, this could not be the case. So they had to teach this message in a time and place of uh, social inequality um, mm. it, during slavery. We're not even talking about Jim Crow post-slavery. We're talking about during slavery. They had to teach this, this message. And so you have this issue where here, here are the black slaves. You've got this church. Where do they sit in the pew? But do they sit right down next to your white wife? Are you crazy? Well, can't happen. Are you crazy? This is a problem. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, they begin to separate them out. Uh, we'll put the slaves on that side of the church over there um, and the good white people over here. And we would call it equal and amen. But of course, if you're going to church together, even separate it that way, you still have a problem because biology does not recognize race. Biology does not recognize race. Young black men and young white women are going to recognize each other's humanity because they're horny exactly. in their teens. And I don't care how racist you are. <laughs> Put them in Biology the cuts through <laughs> racism in, a, in ways that nothing else can. That's true. So it, it wasn't very long before the good white people of the South realized they had a serious problem. And so the way they solved the problem was they would build black churches. They would build these places for those black slaves to go to so that they wouldn't have to go to their church. Mm -hmm. Just physically separate. Yeah, (laughs) It's a physical separation. And uh, and historically, almost every black church that you see in the South was built by a white church. Uh, To Mm -hmm. this day, uh, you will have uh, small towns where there'll be two churches of the same denomination, uh, really one church, just black one and white one. And the white church will support the black preachers, not out of benevolence, but they need to keep them over there. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah we'll, separate. we'll yeah. build your building and we'll pay your preacher. And by the way, we'll train up your preacher, uh, you know, good enough so that he can talk to you. But you stay over there. We'll stay over here and we'll all pretend like we love each other. Mm-hmm. This is the essence of how black churches began. Now, if you, if you look at the AMA movement, just very briefly, the AMA mm-hmm. movement, uh, which is the African Methodist Episcopal, uh, and then you have a Zion movie t- movement too, but it, it's kind of the same thing, different denominations. African Methodist Episcopal, AME, I'm sorry, African Methodist Episcopal mm-hmm. Church, that was started by a similar kind of situation, uh, a man uh, who was rising through the ranks, wanted to be a preacher, but it's a problem. He's, he's a black man and these are good white people. What shall we do? Well, we're, we can't actually let you be a preacher here. That's crazy. Hmm. Um, and so long story short, that led to the African Methodist Episcopal rather than just the Methodist Episcopal. That is, that is literally the genesis of the black church hmm. in this country. Uh, black schools are the same way. We have black colleges because white colleges would not allow admission to black students. Hmm. Black students wanted to go to white colleges. They were not allowed admission. I said that was the last thing. This is the last thing. Yeah. Black people wanted to go to the white church, even after all the history that had gone on. So even as late as the 50s and 60s in the, in the 19s, 1950s, 1960s, even a little bit later, you could find signs still on churchyards that say whites only. Hmm. Uh, now, the terrible thing is not just that there's a sign there because you'll, you'll look at the sign and you'll think, well, that's the story. That's not the story. The story is, why did white churches feel so moved to put such a sign there in the first place? Hmm. Because it's one thing to have in your heart the desire not to uh, have social mixing with races, but how desperate do you have to be to actually put the sign out there? At a church. To to just say it. So let let this thought percolate in your mind. There were enough black people who wanted to go to white churches that white churches had to start physically putting signs saying don't come here anymore yeah stay in your own you've got your own churches that's what we built them for <laughs> this is exactly what they said to by the way yeah. in, by, in fact what's wrong with your this church? is exactly what they said to me in the late 1990s mm. so that sentiment is still very much around but it's not the, the, the exact words. Well, yeah, the exact very much words. It wasn't just the sentiment. They were still backing yeah. it up. Yeah, there's no, there's no implication. This is what they were saying. <laughs> so Yeah, I can remember that because I was part of the Promise Keepers movement. I don't know if you were caught up in that around that 1990s period. I, I wasn't, but that's, that's the, uh, what I was talking about, uh, yeah. part of that racial reconciliation movement. Uh, so that was only one part of it. It was a big part of it. Yeah. So we used to go to the Promise Keepers rally. I mean, I was just a, I wasn't involved in leadership of it, but I was just a church member and I was an elder at the church and all that. So we took groups of men up to these places, these big conventions they had, and they made a, a feature of having black preachers, you know, and it was like, oh, we're going to have 
T.D. Jakes preach at this thing. We're going to have people that are prominent in the black community. And this is in the early 1990s. I think they were trying to make that point, weren't they, that, hey, we're going to have some sort of racial reconciliation. Get up and hug a hug a person next to you. You've hugged a person of color that you've never touched a black man in your life, you know. And that was the first time for probably a lot of white evangelicals that even sat next to a black guy anywhere or a person of color. Yeah, I wonder why that movement uh, failed. Mm. Anyway, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's what I, I think wondering. it morphed and it got more political and it yeah. uh, just, it had its heyday and, and all that, but it yeah. kind of went, went the way of the world, I guess. All, all of these things have their moments, yeah. but you can tell what's really real when the moment has passed and mm -hmm. you see what remains. And what remains today is in fact, the seed of why we can't talk about systemic racism without talking about the church's role in it. And so yeah. I, I wanted to start where I started for a reason, because I know that you uh, probably uh, have some thoughts or questions on, this, on the subject of systemic racism. Mm. So starting last year in the middle of race riots, race riots in 2020. Can you imagine that? Yeah. In, the, in the middle of that, there was from time to time a person who might ask, why are black people so angry? Which is another question that white people should consider. <laughs> it's a, why, why are there so many angry black people? <laughs> I, I mean, they've never gotten more welfare in their life. Uh, they're, they're getting free money from Trump. Why are you, what are you, what are you angry about? <laughs> um, and uh, it's not a terribly obvious answer un unless you know some of the history. When we come back from the break, David's going to finish that thought about why are black people so angry? Why is this an issue? in America and indeed the world today. We consider ourselves a progressive nation here in Great Britain, but we saw just recently with the advent of the unfortunate loss that England suffered in the 2020 Euros football or soccer championship to Italy, off the back of that which went to penalty kicks, we saw all over social media within seemingly minutes of the game being over racist abuse being hurled at the three players who missed their penalty kicks, the last three penalty kicks, and so that's a thing here in this country, which is considered a, another progressive country. So David's going to you know, help unpack that for us. Why are black people so angry? Gee, I wonder why. That's pretty obvious. But I just wanted to mention really quickly what's coming up in the next few episodes here on MindShift Podcast before we get back into the chat with David. I have got a fantastic conversation coming up as I'm doing this recording now. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be having a conversation with Kurt Anderson, the author of Fantasyland. I've been listening to that book again on Audible for a second time, getting my questions ready for Kurt. So that's going to be coming out as a bonus episode very soon here, followed by then a, a chat that I did a while back with Daniel Phelps, who is a survivor and an ex-member of the World Revival Church out of Kansas City. And that is another fascinating story about cult survival, what makes that church a cult. And then at some point here, we're going to be coming out with our two-part episode that we did also a while ago. Rachel Bernstein and I did one for her show, the Indoctrination Podcast. And then the second half is going to be coming out here 
on Mindship Podcast. So that's some really cool stuff coming up. Also, I've been in chats with my good friend Frank Schaefer. His new book is coming out, and this is something that is exclusively only for patrons of this show. We are putting together a discussion group for people who are going to get an advanced copy of his book. We're going to be holding a Zoom call with Frank, hopefully sometime in the month of August. You can be a part of that conversation with Frank by helping to support the show on Patreon. That is something that is a benefit for the Patreon supporters. And in fact, speaking of which, I wanted to give a huge thank you to Jana Selby. She actually upped her uh, monthly subscription, so I sent her a really cool little gift from North Wales. Also, we have another supporter, Rhonda Skolkowski. She is a newest Patreon supporter of the show. So that is really cool to see that going on. Thank you, everybody, for your support of this podcast. You can be a part of that. You can be a part of the community and join our closed Facebook group. And in there, we have a lot of really interesting conversations. And there, we're going to have our announcement about when this thing with Frank Schaefer is coming up. So some really cool stuff in the pipeline coming up in the next few weeks and hopefully months. So let's get on back into the conversation with David Johnson. I think you're going to find, again, as he goes into this explanation of why black people are so angry, justifiably so, he's going to tell us a couple more stories that are just unbelievable. So let's get on back into this issue of papering over the ugly truth, the history of racism and the church in the United States. But I I think the reason why black people were so angry, I was angry and I'm not generally an angry black man. Mm -hmm. So, but I was angry. Um, I get angry every time this comes up for the same reason. It's, it's not because things happened to our people in the past that have us in a condition of disadvantage today. That's, that's not it, actually. We could, we could get over that. It is the continual denial of white people that this has happened. It's, it's the refusal to acknowledge what for us is an obvious longstanding truth of systematic racism. Mm. And, and when you say, oh, no, there is no such thing as systematic racism, not only do we not know what you're talking about, we just want to punch you in the face. Hmm. That's what we want to do. And we, most of us don't do it. Most of yeah. us don't say it. But I'm going to tell you right now, you do not know a single black person who doesn't want to punch you in the face if you say that there's no such thing as systemic racism. It is just as much of a blow as a survivor of the Holocaust saying, uh, there, uh, you know, talking to someone who's saying, yeah, I don't believe the Holocaust was real. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what is what is their yeah. response to that what is the emotional response to that uh, you yeah. don't you can't possibly have a actual real conversation with that person anymore they have tuned out mm -hmm. they are yeah. um in and, and so i think this is part of the the anger that burst open in in um 2020 and those of us who lived through some of it, but who know our history, it's, it's inconceivable to us that people who consider themselves smart don't understand the systemic racism. But I do have a little bit of an understanding for why people come to that conclusion. It is because their story has not been told. 
Hmm. Uh, if you want to, if you want to kill history, there's there are ways to do it, right? Uh, China is doing it right now. There's a whole generation of people who don't know the significance of Tiananmen Square, hmm. who live in China. There there are ways to do that. Now, the rest of us outside of China, we look at that, and China says, uh, "What do you mean? Nothing happened. <laughs> nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, there's nothing. Look on Google. You don't see anything there. Yeah, it's all been right? wa- I mean, washed away." What we want to do is punch China in the face hmm. uh, because uh, actually we saw it. <laughs> and um, this is exactly why there's so many people who don't understand the systemic racism because the story has not been told and they don't know how late in history those whites only signs were. And they don't uh, uh, have never read the kinds of uh, articles uh, from the first couple of paragraphs that I read you, you know, that's not a, that's not a rare thing. Mm-hmm. It's, history is full of it. It's, it's well documented. It's one of the yeah. best documented parts of American history. It's there on the top. If you want to see it, mm-hmm. right. It's, it's not hidden. You don't need a special degree in a special library to find it. It's easy to find. <laughs> you can quickly yeah. get overwhelmed with the history of it. But what the churches did in particularly was to have a campaign, a very long-standing campaign over decades in public where they disadvantaged the black men. And it all started in, I say it started in the church. It's hard to separate what starts in society, mm-hmm. what starts in the church. But these were church people. It's not like it came to the church later. Right. Um, they, were, they were there at the beginning. And so as late as um, Brown versus the Board of Education, mm-hmm. you know who was uh, standing in the corner of segregation? It was the church. Christian schools yeah. were historically the last schools to desegregate. And the only reason they did is because the law forced them to do it. Yeah, they lost they their tax-exempt status. Bob, look at Bob yeah. Jones University. <laughs> yeah, they, they, were, they were a segregation academy. It's, it's, once again, it's easy to get caught up in various denomination schools. And you, can, you can dig down that history. But this is, this is just true across the board. And I can say that some places, some regions, some denominations were worse than others, but they were all bad. Mm-hmm. And um, so there were exceptions to the rule, obviously, and I want to recognize exceptions. But the fact is the church as a whole, they fought tooth and nail every effort to socially integrate in any way, whether it was uh, education or business, anything. The church was right there fighting against uh, social equality. Mm-hmm. And the church was the most influential institution in this country at the time that mattered. And arguably, they still might be uh, the most influential uh, institution in the country. Yeah. You can't, we couldn't have had the level of systematic racism that we had at the time for as long as we did without the church. It's true. They seem to be on the wrong side of history. I mean, look at the Christian right. You know, they're anti-ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, anti-gay rights, anti-civil rights. They've always been on the wrong side, it seems like. Well, how far back does it go? Because this is something I was talking about with Jared Yates Sexton the other day in his book, American Rule. And he says, look, this stuff goes back, you could go back to the Crusades, you know, it comes across with the colonizers, the doctrine of discovery, this idea that these are papal bulls that were issued by the Catholic Church, 
saying, look, if you claim a land in the name of the king of whatever country that you, you know, you're, you're going out from, that's your land. And if the indigenous people there, they, if they resist, you have every right to wipe them out. So it's, it's baked into that. And America is part of the colonial story, isn't it? So yeah. someone said it came across with the Mayflower. It came across, it, it wasn't a new thing that somehow started, you know, in 1603 or four when they founded Jamestown. You know, it was it was all part of the European uh, colonial efforts in the bigger picture. The, the southern cotton uh, farmers, uh, owners, were Christians. Yeah. They're the, they're the people who brought the slave trade here. Christians yeah. like to talk about how it was Christians who stood up against slavery. Yeah, the yeah, abolitionists. But you were you were fighting against your own people. <laughs> yeah. It was Christians that brought it here. Yeah. Um, well, and it was a full-time you know, industry to um, justify, because I've read like R.L. Dabney, I don't know if you come across his work, what he called the theological war thesis, you know, going into the Civil War, saying that the South was a bastion of orthodoxy, slavery was condoned by the Bible, which it is, and it was, and the slaves, they, ne they never had it so good. You know, I don't know what their problem is, this is what Dabney was saying, and then later gets picked up by people in the 1970s against civil rights movement. You know, so this this idea is still has roots even today. Right. Now, uh, to be fair, I don't know why I should be fair, but I will uh, <laughs> go ahead and be fair and say there were Christians who were on the right side of human rights, too. Mm -hmm. um, now, I want to put an asterisk around this, though, because a lot of fundamentalist Christians will like to boast about the Christians who were marching in civil rights and who fought for the rights of black people. Many of those people, those Christians are not the kinds of people that Christians think of as Christians today. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's very, it's rich to put it mildly. So uh, some of the uh, civil rights Christians would have been the Quakers, for instance, the Quakers, the friends, the shakers. Uh, there's a, there's a, a close-knit tradition uh, along, along those lines. Yeah, they were pacifists uh, and, they, and everything. Yes, yeah. they, were, they were famously pacifists, famously uh, equal rights people way before mm -hmm. equal rights were cool. Well, tell me, how many, how many good Southern Baptists do you know who regularly shake hands with Quakers today? <laughs> Their paths are rarely ever going to meet. <laughs> right, true. never. And Not so, ever. but but they want to they want to claim the the Quakers' history. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you see, Christians, we were fighting for you. No, you weren't. Shut up. <laughs> Ain't gonna happen. Because, I've, because yeah. I've read my history, and I and I yeah. know better than that. You can't fool me. Um, yeah. You know, and if if you really if you really believe that, go hug a Quaker. Uh, go, name one. me name me three Quakers that you know. Personally, you can't do it. Shut up. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's um, that's kind of my response to to that. But yes, there were always Christians of some description fighting with blacks and marching with mm -hmm. blacks. But that was not the majority of Christians. Those these were the outcasts of Christians, especially yeah. uh, in their day. That's uh, true. So. Yeah, they've right. Always, they've always had a funny view of Quakers. And my, my family were actually Quakers over here in this country. That's where my history comes from. They went across to Pennsylvania and bought land from William Penn. So there's one Quaker I could name, William Penn. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, actually used to, either. 
I used to attend a, um, a friend's church right. uh, group uh, for a while. It was very interesting. <laughs> maybe it's definitely maybe one day on one of these podcasts, I'll talk about it sometime. <laughs> Irrelevant here, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I could I could actually uh, name a, f- a few, <laughs> but but yeah, I these are not the people that uh, the Christians of that day would have palled around with or considered orthodox in any way. Sure, by and large, yeah. they weren't going to have William Penn come speak at their church and you know, back then in those days. Well, now, right. uh, what about today? Because in, in this country, for example, you know, we say well, we're so enlightened over here in the United Kingdom. I just read an article recently where the Church of England has commissioned a study to talk about institutional racism in the Church of England. What a shock. They've actually admitted that there's a deep, you know, long-standing institutional racism in the Church of England that people of color have been treated shockingly badly. And we're talking about, it just came out like in April. So this is a brand new thing. So suddenly in the church of England, you know, so we're not that enlightened either. And I know people, British people were asking me like when Obama was president, you know, they're like, wow, this is amazing. This is a huge milestone that you guys have elected an African American as president. And yet that was we saw more of a rise of like far right militia groups during the Obama administration, and of course Trump comes along and he's a complete, you know, he's he's retweeting white supremacies and saying there was very fine people at Charlottesville on both sides, and you know we're going backwards it seems like in this day and age. Yeah, except I don't I don't think we're actually going backward at all. I think mm. we never went forward. Mm. So there were a lot of things that happened in history that allowed us to paper over the ugly truth. Mm. And we could, we could bury a lot of ugly things under the sediment of fake progress. Um, and some progress is real. I think Brown versus the board was, was real. Mm-hmm. But uh, interestingly enough, this, this landmark decision that ended the idea of separate but equal didn't actually find expression. This, this is something that happened, if I recall, in the 50s. This is, it didn't find expression until the 70s. Mm. Because for all of that time, schools were still, practically speaking, segregated. And they were going to remain segregated until someone made them yeah. <laughs> not be segregated. Forced so, busing. They tried it. Right. It for, busing is exactly uh, where I'm going with that. So yeah. it's... They tried uh, it. it wasn't until the rubber meat met the road uh, sometime in the 70s. Yeah, literally. We had a whole whole new set of riots and things like that yeah. where people are like, what, you're going to actually make us do it? Uh, yeah, wait it, a minute. Yeah. Hang so on. You could, you could say, you could pretend for about 20 years that there had been progress. There had been no progress. <laughs> you right. know? It's on paper. Um, that's right. And so when you, when you see the 70s, you realize there really hadn't been attitudinally any progress since Jim Crow. Mm. The, these, the, there was the same attitudes. And it was just now coming to a place where, yeah, okay, we're going to have to actually do this. And it was a long, hard, violent slog to integrate public schools. But you know what happened in the process? We got private schools. <laughs> yep. I was just going to say segregation academies. 
<laughs> right. So, you know, um, those, those schools are still alive and well. Um, so how much progress have we made since Brown? Not nearly as much as it looks externally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when, when Obama becomes president, boy, did that strike a nerve. People think yeah. that Trump brought the racist groups with him. He did not. The racist groups never left. Yeah, they, they were always there. <laughs> they, they've been here since slavery. Um, they, were, they were here since the Night Watch. They, they, they never left. It's just that they lost political power. Yeah. But when a black man, when a trained monkey, when someone who, if I can paraphrase our uh, preacher quoted from earlier, mm-hmm. someone who could speak well enough for his own people, became president and spokesman for everybody, well, that couldn't, that couldn't stand. And you might think, well, oh, but, you know, this was just a small segment of society that started pushing back. That small segment of society elected Donald J. Trump as president. They did. Um, that's, that's who that base was. That's how his base started. So, no, we're not dealing with a small segment of society, and we're not dealing with 200 years of, of unhindered progress. Yeah, that's, progress. That's a story that we like to tell ourselves. But the moment you put a black man in the White House for some reason uh, other than sweeping the floor, you, you realize what the real story is. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying. I, saw, I was watching a show last year. It was about the rise of militia groups in, in the United States. And they were showing the, the statistics. And when, when Obama became president, it just more than tripled, quadrupled. White supremacist militia groups just exploded because, you know, here we go. This is the start of it all. You know, they're going to put a black man in the White House. He's going to take away our guns and on and on and on. And they just, what the paranoia, the conspiracy theories just exploded like never before. Like you say, they were there, but they got organized in a serious way. And now we're seeing, I mean, look at the insurrection on the 6th of January. Those, you know, waving Confederate flags around and Christian nationalism, QAnon meets Christian nationalism at the Capitol riots. The subtext of, um, of, of some of this um, voter fraud claim from yeah, the, the Republican lie. side. Yeah, the big lie. But there's a subtext under that big lie, which can easily be missed. Uh, some, some political commentators uh, have, in fact, mentioned it. And so it's not, it's not a secret. But the subtext is the people that voted Trump out of office were the inner city black people. It was, it was yeah. the rise of the black people and their, their opportunity to fight back. And if you'll, if you'll look at all of the places where Trump contested the election, is all urban populations mm-hmm. uh, with high black density. And those were the places. Uh, and so the subtext of his accusations were black people, black voters, yep. fraudulent. And the, and the movement to suppress vote is not in the rural areas. It's in those urban areas because when black people vote in mass, Republicans lose. Mm-hmm. And we've got to, we've got to stop all of those fraudulent uh, read black votes in those areas. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was going to uh, say, if you drill down in the, into the Republican rhetoric, as you say, what, what really is at the core of it seems to me is racism. Exactly what you said. Where are they actually targeting these areas that are supposedly contested? It's places of high black communities, people of color. Those are the areas that they're saying we've got to pass all these voter suppression, gerrymandering laws. So it's, it's got a racist core to the whole thing, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really does. And if you, if you think about the places where Trump won, you'll notice that there is not a hint of an, an indication that those votes were fraudulent. Those, were, those votes were fine. Yeah. Those were good white people voting. Yeah, Obviously, their fraudulent. votes were fine. Yeah. It was places like <laughs> Atlanta. Yeah, that's yeah Atlanta. Hot, Hot Atlanta. Atlanta. Oh. <laughs> Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Stacey Abrams. Yeah, they don't like any of that. I mean, that's yeah, so even that's, back when Roy Moore, you know, that was another one. They didn't like that, that the, the African-American women came out in force and was like, no, we are not going to let this guy get reelected. Come on. Oh, man. Yeah. No, that's, this is, um, there's, so there's, there's a lot of subtext there. And mm. I think uh, people who are just not familiar with the history, I, I don't, I try not to blame people for not being familiar with history. I don't want to be familiar with the history, <laughs> honestly. Um, I have to be familiar with the history. Uh, that's just where my life has led me. The people who aren't familiar with it don't, don't see it, and they can't mm. be convinced of it. But they, you know what they, else they can't be convinced of? They can't be convinced to pick up a book and, and read. Mm-hmm. You know, I, could, I've, I could give a few book suggestions, but it wouldn't help. Uh, people have yeah, been suggesting be books for a long time. It's, it's, a, it's information that nobody wants to know. Now, I know that you had mentioned that we had a short period of time, and I know that we've reached that period. But before we go, I do want to talk about one other aspect of mm-hmm. this that I think uh, fairness demands that I talk about, which is the black half of the racial divide in the churches in, specific, in, in particular. So it sounds like I'm putting all of the the weight of the responsibility on white people at white churches. Well, historically speaking, that is true. And you, you, you are in fact, entirely responsible <laughs> for, yeah. for that. You have to, you're going to square with that. Gotta own that one. Um, yeah. But there, but that's not the whole story. So there is a, another side of this story because you can say, well, you know, maybe, maybe white people did some bad things uh, that, got us to where we are, but you don't see black people trying to do any better. They're, they're happy in their black churches. You know, if, it, if, if segregation is so bad, you know, why don't, why don't they do something? Well, first of all, what, what would, would you think they could do? Uh, but yeah. what do you want them but, to do? Yeah. What would, what would you even want them to do? What's going to work? There, there is a point to be made that black people today are no more interested in integration than white people. There mm. was a time when we were beating down your door. We're not doing that anymore. Mm. You, you notice that that's just not happening anymore. Right? That's, uh, we've all settled into our places. And so we kind of understand why white people are happy and comfortable. But, you know, if black people are all self-righteous, you know, why don't we see them marching? Well, they're, they're pretty comfortable, too. And when I uh, did a ministry of racial reconciliation, one of the most unpopular things that I did was I talked about the black responsibility uh, in all of this too, because black people don't want to hear that they have a responsibility. 
mm. and that they have a, a part of this other than victimhood that, that they can play. Uh, I understood the pushback, don't get me wrong, but we do have to own our part. So part of our part is that, well, let me talk about black colleges for just a second, because this seems to be the easiest one to understand. Segregation is illegal, right? Yeah. And uh, sure. Title IV funding is a huge uh, part of college funding, right? I mean, you get, so you would think that there could not possibly be a such thing as a black college today, except we all know, at least people of power know a very important historical truth. No one wanted a black college who was black. Black people did not want a degree from a black college. That would mean spit in the real world. Oh, I see. Right. Right. I mean, why, why would I want a black college degree if I'm living in Jim Crow times for Pete's sake? Right. It's not gonna what is that going to do? Right. I see. It's not going to do a thing for me. I'd still be just as lynched. You need something from a recognized, so to speak, white university. Right. But we couldn't get that. You couldn't get there. Yeah. We couldn't get that. And so, uh, and by the way, uh, your, your viewers don't write in about exceptions. I don't care about the exceptions. I know there are always <laughs> exceptions. That is not the rule. Shut up. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so put that out there. Yeah. Let's not, let's not even, uh, go there. Um, but the black colleges, they, they existed because they had to exist hmm. for black people to get any education they had to exist and in their early days and sometimes today they existed on the uh, hand-me-downs from the white schools textbooks that they were no longer using that mm -hmm. were often out of date that sort of thing uh but there was no other choice in this country we had to have black colleges for black people to get any kind of education and at some point we recognized in history, that this is a place where poor, often underprivileged black people could, in fact, go get an education. And it would be an even bigger crime to take that college away. Mm. Uh, because we, we carved that, that black college out of blood, sweat, and tears. That's how we got it. Right. And, and, They'll be damned if anyone tries to take it away from them now. Hmm. It, it would feel like trying to enslave them all over again. We finally built something worthwhile and you want to take it away. This is, this is why we have black home lenders. Mm -hmm. Understand why we have places like Fannie Mae. Uh, because the black person couldn't go to the bank and get a loan. Right, yeah. Where are they going to get a loan? Uh, Who's going to loan them money? Right to get that education, right? Or, or, or get a home. a home or anything? Yeah. You know what? Where's your American dream coming from? It, the American Express didn't work for you. Mm -hmm. You you had to you had to go somewhere else. You needed to get a job. Well, you needed some black-owned businesses because who's going to hire you? Right. Uh, so these institutions were required. We, we, had, we simply had no choice as a society but to allow these institutions to uh, take root. And when they did, there was no power in history or law 
that could remove those institutions from us. If you want to see a civil war, try to end black colleges. Heck, I would pick up a gun and start shooting myself. And, and I didn't know black college. <laughs> right. So this is, this is simply the fabric of what we are as a people and a country. And it's a piece of history that you cannot uh, line item out mm-hmm. with some law. It can't be written out of existence. The history is there for us all to see, and we can't remove it. It's like a tumor uh, that you're living with, but if you removed it, you would die. That's what these Black institutions are now. Mm. And so I started this with the Black church responsibility. Well, Blacks have absolutely no desire whatsoever to give up their churches now. They didn't even want them. They had to give them, but to get them. But now the black community is defined by the church in ways that is not true in the white community. Because mm-hmm. white communities had lots of other ways to define themselves. They could define themselves on the golf course or the, the athletics program, which blacks couldn't uh, participate in, or um, in business. They could define themselves in any number of ways. And they had free reign in all that the world had to offer. The black people had nothing but their church. Hmm. Even people who didn't believe in God believed in the black church because everything that was going to happen to you in the, in the black community is going to start with that church. And there's a certain period in our history where you look at the black singers that came out, all of them came through black churches. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Every last one of them. It is not because they are so religious. It's because this was the only way out and up for so many people. And so do you, can you imagine any incentive for an entrenched black church to say, well, okay, let's merge with that white church and lose our social identity. There is no way on earth. Nobody wants to do that. It's not, it's never going to happen. Yeah. And if you try to make it happen, uh, you will, you will see angry black men. And I assure you, I saw a lot of angry black people when I did this, uh, ministry because they, they didn't think that I understood, um, where they were coming from and they were right because I didn't at the time. And I got a little bit of an education. Hmm. Um, and that's, and that's just the truth of it. And so at this point, yeah, you can say the black church is an evil. It's a stain on a, a pox on both houses. Mm-hmm. It's a visible stain. Well, I would go further. I'd call it a tumor, but it's an inoperable tumor. There will never be a time in America where you can get rid of the black church. And I, and I predict there is, can never be a time in America where the church is considered broadly integrated. There are pockets of integration. Oh, sure. Uh, if, we, if we had more time, I would talk about some of the, uh, what I think is excellent work in the, uh, some of the Pentecostal movements. I, I think, in fact, some of the crazier churches out there <laughs> are some of the best at integration because when you're crazy, you need fellowship from anybody. You just, you're, you're you not interested anybody. In, right. You're, the you're color anybody. Your skin. <laughs> you, you need, you need allies, right? Yeah. Um, there's no racism in a foxhole. That's right. Um, and Someone's so, going to have your back. 
you know, the, the crazier you are, the, the more chances the more you know, your you church is going to be. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I, you know, I could talk about some of the churches in my own experience um, mm. that, you know, I, uh, as I visited churches and so forth, some of the, some of the heroic stances uh, I saw. And maybe one day I'll do a podcast just on those, yeah. those outliers. But the thing that you need to understand is those are outliers. Yeah. And, and that was the truth then. It is the truth today. The reason we have the situation of the black church is because white churches, once upon a time, white Christians worked so hard, so publicly to create this separation. But we have a situation now, and I, I'll just finish my remarks with this. The most ambitious white racist in the church 50 years ago, 60 years ago, could not have imagined how successful their campaign would be. If you told mm. uh, the people in the 1950s who were nailing uh, uh, on their church doors, whites only, if you could tell them there would be one day when you would no longer need these signs and that white churches and black churches uh, exist in 2020 and that they're not even trying to integrate anymore, <laughs> they're all happy with the situation, they would have thought you were crazy. They were just trying to get the infestation out of their churches. They had no idea how successful they would be. They are amazingly successful now. And what we have are people, I'm specifically focusing on the white churches. I, uh, again, there's, a, there's another story to be told. What we have oh, yeah. now are white churches full of people who are happy to say, oh, I'm not racist. And if you ask them, well, why, where are the black people in your church? I don't know. I don't know, but it's not because, you know, we welcome everybody. We love everybody. Praise Jesus. But what they are, are enjoying the fruits of the labors of their forefathers. Mm -hmm. They are experiencing exactly the thing that those people dreamed of. Yeah. The when they nailed those signs, signs to the yeah. churches, when they put the clan hood on their head. They are enjoying the fruits of the labors and worshiping in the house that the clan literally built. Mm -hmm. That's the white church today. That's yeah. what you've inherited. That's what you were so comfortable in. Yeah. When you look around and someone says, where are the black people? I, it's not me. Yes, it is. It is yeah, you. You are complicit. Yeah. You accepted the gift. And if you don't want it, get out and do something about it. Hmm. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? I read an article recently by a, a, a young black girl, and she grew up in a white church. And she said, you know, it was like she kind of woke up to that, that reality you just talked about that, you know, she said that my church, they weren't racist overtly. I mean, they weren't wearing Klan hoods and burning crosses, but she said the fact that she realized every time that a black person was killed by the police, every time that something happened, all the worship music was explicitly aimed at a white audience and on and on down the line. She said, you know, they were racist in the sense that they never, ever took a stand. Nobody ever said anything. They never talked about, you know, when Trump did something racist or whatever. And so she said, actually, yeah, by your, your omission, you're being racist, which is what you're talking about. 
we're not racist, no, but yeah, you're complicit in this thing nonetheless, it sounds like. Have you ever seen a clan robe and hood up close? Not in person. Real wooden. No. Okay. So there's a there's a um place in uh, I can't remember where it was now. I was on a uh what was called a Senkofa tour and I was with the Evangelical Covenant Church. So I did a little time in the ECC in uh in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we had come to the South for a tour. And of course, I, I was from the South. And uh, they put us on a bus. We toured. I think we flew down and then we did a bus tour. But we toured um, several uh, important sites throughout the, the South. And they paired us up, uh, a black person, a white person. Mm-hmm. They had to get a lot of black people from other churches because we just didn't have any. <laughs> but right, yeah. uh, but I... I Part of my history is I worshipped at white churches. I probably worshipped at more white churches than black churches. But mm-hmm. um, so I was on this tour, and you can read a little bit about the experience even today. So if you go to the Seattle Times uh, in the living se- section, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but if you look up Sankofa Seattle Times David Johnson, you'll you'll see it. That that piece made the front page. So. Uh, it was actually the first piece of writing I did that I got paid for. All right. So, um, gig. yeah. So, um, at any rate, we were uh, on this tour and one of the museums, uh, stops we were at, they had a, a lot of artifacts from, from, uh, the Jim Crow era. And one of those art artifacts was a genuine, uh, robe, clan robe and hood. And the uh, white person that I, was paired with i can't remember his name i'm sorry but we 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 formed uh, a close bond there for a while mm-hmm. we we both stopped at this uh, displaying and uh, neither one of us had ever seen anything like this before and they had lots of things there from it but there was something about this robe and hood uh that that just caught the breath mm-hmm. and uh i asked him would would you mind taking uh, the hood and putting it on? I'd, I'd like to see it. He was appalled by the the request, <laughs> but of course we we had been together for you know, right, you several days by, by then. Um, uh, he kind of knew what to expect from me. <laughs> expect the unexpected. <laughs> well, I mean, look. Um, on that same tour, we had visited Martin Luther King's church and you know, important areas in the pulpit were roped off. I, of course, crossed the rope and uh, knelt to the pulpit and got my picture there. That's right. Had um, to be done. Of course it had to be done. Had to Who, be done. What kind of person wouldn't do that? Absolutely. Apparently, everybody else I was with. Right. Apparently, you're the only one. <laughs> I was, Remind me never to go on a museum tour with you, did. You want to go to a museum oh, tour yeah. with me. Okay. I am the only person you want to go with. <laughs> Actually, you're right. Uh, you're right. <laughs> so... Look, yeah. uh, somebody will bail you out. They're not going to keep you in jail forever. <laughs> right. um, so, uh, so at any rate, yeah, he, we both looked at the thing though. And we took the request as seriously as possible. Mm. And there was a point where we were both almost physically nauseous because this wasn't a Hollywood prop. Yeah. This was the real, uh, and game. this wasn't a replica. Somebody wore yeah. this thing during lynches 
and house burnings and murder and 95% chance that somebody was either a Christian or a Christian who was also a politician in power. Yeah, <laughs> That's, that is the raw bare fact yeah, that's the demographic of, 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 that, uh, of that piece of hardware. And when you see it, when you are up close in the same room with it, it's like being up close, uh, what I would imagine being up close uh, with a medieval torture device. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, you, are, you are right there. You can practically smell the smoke and blood and bone that that thing had collected over time and the fetid musty sweat Mm. of the animal who put it on and also wore a cross and carried a Bible at the time you could smell it and feel it and taste Mm. it. And you came to the reality in a way that movies cannot do that. This really happened. And this is where our problem today was born. And thank goodness there's still some, some remnants of that time, some reminders of that time. If you ever come within spitting distance of something like that, you should go see it so that you understand that this is not an academic subject. This is a life-lived subject, yeah, and true. we are all the product of it. It's, I, I kind of get a small sense of what you're talking about. We went to Auschwitz a few years ago when we visited Krakow in Poland and I'm like, my wife's like, I don't want to go. I said, no, we have to go. We have to, everyone should go to a place like that. Not for the morbidity of it, because you want to walk those, those along those train tracks. You want to see where they lived, where, where these atrocities happen. You are in the actual place. Mm. That's where it happened. You can't, you can't watch a movie and, and experience the same thing. Can you? So yeah, no. it's it's a it's a powerful experience. It would be hard for mm-hmm. me to to go to Auschwitz. I'll tell you, um, Schindler's List. When I when I saw Schindler's List, and I've only seen it once because I mm-hmm. I couldn't bear to see it again. I had a visceral reaction. Uh, Same it was it that made that period more real for me than anything that I had heard before. And it was, it was so real to me. It was, it was bile stuck in my throat the whole time. It seems profane to call it a great movie. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to actually be there, I don't think I could do it. Yeah. It's a I, I think it, I would find it easier to put on the clan, clan robe hmm. than to visit Auschwitz. Yeah, well, it, I I still think everyone should go to some some place like that and see that. I know it's it's incredibly difficult. What got me were the tourists who were like taking selfies <laughs> in front of the train. I, I I was I told my wife I'm like I'm gonna go kick that guy's ass. I couldn't believe it. You know, this, what they don't know what happened here. Um, they're taking selfies in front of the train. You know that brought loads of Jews in through the main gate. I mean, it's shocking. Um, and this generation now, they need to know what happened. So it's, it's an education thing. Well, listen, I know we got to go. We've been talking for over an hour now. Uh, where can people find you? What's, what's your show and where's the best place to get a hold of you on social media? Uh, the best place to get a hold of me on social 
media is kissmyass.com because <laughs> I am not going to respond to social media. I don't do it. <laughs> You're not there. I've got a Twitter account. I'm not telling you what it is. God <laughs> help me. Please don't ever try to find me on social media. I don't, I don't want to talk to you. Stop it. Uh, however, uh, if, you said all that. <laughs> if you want to run me down, uh, you can catch me uh, at the email address skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Skepticsandseekers, all one word, at gmail.com. I do read every email and I try to answer them all. Um, you can catch my show. It's called Skeptics and Seekers, but I guess I, I bet you guessed that by now. That Skeptics and Seekers uh, dot squarespace dot com. That's Skeptics and Seekers dot squarespace dot com. I do a podcast every week, except in the summer, my off season. But I tend to somehow find a way to do as many podcasts in the off season as my own season. So I don't quite have this off-season thing worked (laughs) out yet but you can catch me uh there you can even join the discussion so if you hear a podcast that you like uh we have uh, an active commentariat uh so just jump in with your discuss account and uh discuss away uh be glad to have you very good thank you david so much i've really enjoyed meeting you and finally really getting to just kind of sink our teeth into this for a good hour or so so let's definitely do this again yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to say I'm sorry, but I'm not. So <laughs> Don't you, should have read, you should have read the fine print. Oh, <laughs> uh, damn it. <laughs> I'm not going to edit any of this out, man. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll talk the, to you later. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Yeah.